Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, about passion, and about making a difference in the world. We're in our Boston studio today, and we've got two guests who are just perfect for this topic. Christopher Kimball from Milk Street, uh, known to many from America's Test Kitchen and Cooking Illustrated, Cooks Illustrated, uh, but now Christopher Kimball's Milk Street. Uh, we're thrilled to have you, Chris. A pleasure. Thanks. Be here. Uh, and John Abbott, who I've known for some time and has been a great chair, strength supporter, president and CEO of WGBH, a uh, lifetime spent in public radio. And John, I'm thrilled to have you here. I think of both of you as more than anything else, educators in a world that desperately needs education on um, substantive and important issues. So we're, we're thrilled to have you, John. Well, it's an honor to be here. What I want to talk about is your role as educators and particularly, in your case, Chris, your perspective on how media has changed the way we think about or changed our relationship to food, to cooking, to the culinary community. But I want to start with how this actually started for you, because I think you've got 38 years experience uh, in the kitchen. At least that's kind of the way I've seen it described. Where did the passion for food and cooking come from? Well, I always cook from an early age, baking cakes at age eight. I think uh, in the late 70s, nobody was uh, in print uh, talking about how to cook. They were celebrating food, restaurants, travel, et cetera, food and wine, cuisine magazine, Bon Appetit, Gourmet. But nobody was really talking about how to cook. Julia was certainly on television, but nobody was doing that in print. So I thought, well, you know, let's do a magazine to help people learn how to cook because the gap between the fancy food magazines and how people actually cooked at home was huge, right? So I wanted to narrow that gap. So I decided the magazine uh, that was very pedantic, I guess, and, and there to teach people the science of cooking, why things work, why they don't, explaining cooking would be uh, something people needed. And it turned out they did. But at the time I started it, it was just my approach to food and cooking. But it turns out people really were interested in why and how. And that was the point of that initial Cook's Magazine. And uh, not to make you feel even older, but to go back farther, um, your cooking cakes at the age of eight, uh, was there an influence? Was it a, a parent or grandmother, something like that? Well, like, yeah, well, how did uh, you get started? We live part of the year in Vermont, uh, the summers on a farm and weekends. And uh, there was a, a, a house, I call the yellow farmhouse, uh, and there was a baker in, in that farmhouse, Marie Briggs, who was the consummate Vermonter. You know, round Coke bottle glasses, hair in a bun, uh, thick black shoes, and she cooked for everybody in town. So if you if you came in, she had a house right on the border. You come into town or out of town, you stop by, get a slice of bread or a cookie, whatever. And I used to eat dinner at noon at the farmhouse when I was working on the farm. Uh, and she taught me to cook, you know. So on a rainy day when you weren't hanging or whatever, you just had milking, uh, you know, I'd, I'd help you know, roll out the anadama bread or make the cookies. And Vermonters have a way of teaching you how to cook, which I love, which is they never talk to you. If <laughs> So when you're kneading the bread the wrong way, she, she come up, not look at you, do it the right way and leave without a word spoken. And that's how I learned how to cook. It was, it was a nonverbal teaching method, which is very, very good because you don't want to disappoint your teacher. Uh, and she just shows you how to do it. And so that's how I learned. I learned by watching her cook. Well, I think I understand what you're talking about. Uh, we spent part of our summers in Maine uh, and get back and forth all year. And this past summer, I became a volunteer firefighter. And, you're, and most of the, the, the training is on-the-job training. But Mainers, like Vermonters, don't really talk a lot. No. 
So, John, we got a little bit of uh, Chris's backstory. I'd love to get yours. I know that your um, career goes back to, I think, KQED in San Francisco, then PBS. Uh, and you were vice president at WGBH in 2007, I think, became president and CEO. Where did your love for broadcast and public broadcasting begin? Well, actually, Chris and I have another thing in common, which is Columbia uh, University. I grew up in the Columbia area, real city kid. And um my grew up listening to the Columbia radio station, which was playing predominantly jazz, which was the music my dad listened to. Uh, we had one stereo in the house, so I didn't listen to any rock and roll until I was about 14. So when I showed up to college and at Columbia uh, and walked into the radio station, I'd been listening to it for years, uh, knew the music pretty well. But also what I really loved was the connection between that station and its service and what it was uh, presenting with jazz and the community in Harlem where so many of the musicians were living and, uh, and playing and, uh, the relationship between that, that community and the musicians community and that station really spoke to me about what public media is about inclusive, a bit of a journey always to learn about things you might not otherwise know about. And I think that's true of, of Chris's work and the work that we do also in the, in the food and the cooking spaces, uh, that's what public media really is about, is revealing, exploring, and giving people a sense that there's always something to learn. And what was your first break? How'd you get your foot in the door? What was your first job? Uh, my first job was, uh, you mentioned KQED. I uh, had these experiences and uh, you had a lot of experiences in radio. And um, uh, KQED was the first public radio station in America to, um, it was a mixed classical music and news format. And they had the, they were seeing how popular and important public radio news was getting. And they made the decision, well, we're going to go all news. And they asked me to basically write the plan for doing that. So I was 25 years old and uh, had new enough to at least know that I could start doing it, seeing if I could finish it. And yeah, that's what I did. I, about 30 years ago, wrote the strategy for the first all news public radio station in America. And look where we are today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned at the beginning that I think of you both as educators, really. Uh, you probably think of yourself as a broadcaster and Chris maybe uh, as a um, as somebody in the culinary community. But really the most powerful way to scale education is through the media. And you've both found really effectively powerful ways to do that. Chris, I'd love to get your perspective since you've been doing it for a while and in different formats on how the media has impacted our relationship to food and to cooking. It's got to, I mean, if you, I guess if you think back really long-term historically, you know, for, uh, I guess, literally thousands of years, people cooked a certain way and, and, and recipes and food got handed down a certain way. And now we've got a phenomenal number of sources that you can go to. I, uh, I mean, as somebody who's pretty active in the culinary space, I can't even keep up with them. What's it been like for, for you uh, to be one of the people who's actually shaped that? Well, there are different stages. I think Julia ushered in the education stage of how to cook at home. By the 50s and 60s, a lot of people were not cooking. Uh, the, the American food industry was taking over with convenience foods. She brought us back to enjoying cooking and learning how to cook. I think in the last 20 years, now we've shifted to the next uh, stage, which is to say the way you thought you should cook and the recipes you grew up with is a tiny part of this universe of food and cooking. I think restaurants back in the 80s, I remember I sat down in 1980 with Florence Fabric and the New York Times and some other people in New York, and we said, okay, the restaurant revolution's coming. 
and it, and it did. Uh, first of all, it was the American uh, restaurant, you know, Larry Forgione in New York, a bunch of other folks, and now it's become this this amazing thing. That has not really impacted how people cook at home until recently. So the next phase now, and what we're trying to do at Milk Street is, is say, look, like like art, like music, like fashion, it's going to be a hybrid of everything in the world. Uh, you know, there's reggae, you know, there's Bob Marley, but there's a hundred other forms of it. So food is not going to be authentically Thai food or authentically American food, whatever that means, which is too complicated for this show. We need three weeks to talk about that. But it's going to be, you know, what do you learn from making a curry? Or what do you learn about a combination of fish sauce and soy sauce? Or what do you learn about using spices in, in uh, Galilee and, you know, in Israel? And taking those things and fashioning this new way of cooking. And that's what's, I think it's the most exciting time in the history of cooking in America to be here now because we can source from all over the world and we can source ingredients, techniques, combinations of flavors. And that's what the media is able to do is to make that, take that, all that from around the world, bring it to your home through a computer screen or a television and say, make it familiar to people. So they can say, okay, I'll, I'll try that. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make coconut rice instead of rice tonight. They take that little step and all of a sudden it's going to be an explosion of how people cook. In 10 years from now, you won't recognize how people cook in this country. It'll be totally changed. Chris, you've written a number of books. Um, what's the new one? It's called The New Rules. The concept is uh, change the way you cook, which we talked about. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's rules to new ways of thinking about cooking so that you can take those rules and then go into the kitchen and improvise a little bit on your own or, or use the recipes in the book. Uh, but it's trying to rethink what we've learned by traveling around the world, bring it back here to the States, to the kitchen, and implement those into useful rules uh, that, that really will make you think differently about how to get food on the table. This is one of the things I love about the way Chris explains where things are going is it's not about barriers. It's not about labels and definitions and that you got to cook it this way because this is authentic. When he's talked to me about this trajectory we're on, it's a little bit about, I love the allusions he's making to music. It's, it's, it's a blend. And I think that empowers people to explore differently um, mm -hmm. and, to, and to maybe trust their reflexes, their instincts, their curiosity. They don't feel like they're taking a test when they do it. And I, you know, I'd like, frankly, you know, in community and society, I think that opportunity for people to kind of learn and, and realize that there's no one answer. Um, I mean, there are better ways of doing things, but that I think that's one of the great things about food is the way to explore and be learning and trying things and not feeling that you're, you know, uh, having to slot yourself into a particular into a particular path. It's all about exploring. Yeah. On the magazine, on Milk Street, uh, which is fabulous, uh, you've got a tagline, which in some ways is very simple, but in other ways struck me as very provocative, uh, which is just change the way you cook. So <laughs> it is provocative. It is, it's provocative. And yeah. say a little bit more about uh, what people should take away from that. Well, I was just in Tel Aviv. We were shooting a segment for the next season, and uh, I went to uh, uh, Shlomo and Duran when they make hummus, right? We've been doing it for three generations. The current generation makes Mexican hummus, makes Balkan hummus, makes shakshuka hummus, you know, et cetera, makes falafel hummus. And the point of it is when you think about a culture and food, people always go to those archetypal recipes like hummus. But if you go to the city where they're making it, one city where they're making it, you realize that they're playing with it. They're doing all sorts of new things with it. So for me, the, the excitement is to get away from this notion of, 
you know, if you go to Thailand, you have this image in your mind of what it is. It's not what it is. <laughs> you know, uh, Lagos in Nigeria, I just spoke to a wonderful uh, Yuande from there, a wonderful cook. I asked her, you know, what do people, what are silly questions people ask you? She says, well, do people in Nigeria live in houses? And she says, oh, no, we live in trees. <laughs> Lagos has 20 million people. It's twice as big as New York. So what's so interesting is the food is able to say, look, here's what's really going on. If you, if you go to Tel Aviv, people talk about their great Thai food, right? So it's never what you think. And so the magazine is really there to say, look, we've been there. We're on the ground. Here's what it's really like. Here's what's really going on. And it's, it's very unfiltered. It's very fluid. And it's, it's changing in Tel Aviv as it's changing here. It's changing in Chiang Mai. It's changing... Uh, you know, in the Republic of Georgia, it's always changing. And that's what's exciting. And that's what the magazine's really about, saying, look, there's the, the world isn't what you thought. Back in the 60s, if you talked about Indian cooking, well, it was Northern Indian cuisine. It was sort of the restaurant cooking. It was something you'd spend all day Saturday making, right? Well, there's, pl- there's 35 different cuisines in India, at least, right? So there's no such thing as Indian cuisine. So it's so interesting to talk about that because then people start to think about the world differently, right? You think about India differently. You think about uh, North Africa differently. You know, Morocco is not just all Tenji and Tajines. You know, there's a lot of other things going on. That's what we're trying to get is what's really going on, bringing that back here. I'm starting to regret having you on the, the the show because I thought I had the best job in the world <laughs> and, until I've listened to you just even for 15 minutes now and realize uh, this has got to be fun. It, it is fun because it's always what you think you're going to find isn't what you find until you meet the people. You know, it's the people that's so important. And ultimately, it's always about the people. So you cook with someone. We go into people's homes as much as possible, not restaurants. Uh, and you meet them and find out they have the same, they're still trying to put dinner on the table, right? Uh, they have families, they have dinner tables. It's the same table everywhere. It's just, it's just a different group of ingredients and a different approach. In Oaxaca, for example, we ended up cooking on the sidewalk in front of someone's house, you know, on a brazier, right? Uh, and we cooked there and then we went back to their dining room table and drank copious amounts of mezcal and ate food for two hours. But it's it's the same table as it is in Vermont, really. It's different different people, but kind of the same people. And that's what's so exciting is the people, they're just people. They're making do with what they have, whether that's in southern Vermont, where I spent a lot of time, or whether that's in Tel Aviv, or whether that's uh, you know in Moscow or wherever else it is, or in Peru. They're all doing the same thing. Uh, and, and that continuity of of approach and 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 outcome, which is putting dinner on the table, uh, makes you feel really good about the world in a time where it's kind of hard to feel good about the world. Yeah, it's really. It's, I mean, it's really a very moving and poignant notion, right? That that's what really kind of binds people together. John, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the mission of WGBH because I think there's some connections to what Chris was just talking about in terms of the world is maybe not what you think it is. There's a lot to be learned out there and you've been such an innovator in public broadcasting and so committed to making sure that I know that like with, you know, vulnerable kids, you've, you're, you've done some really innovative stuff in the early childhood space with science literacy and other things. How do you think about uh, what you've tried to do in terms of shaping the mission of WGBH? Well, I think, you know, the interesting thing about public media is we're present in every part of this country, uh, rural, urban, really in every community of the country. We're actually the last uh, locally owned and governed media in this country that's knit together 
really with a shared mission of giving everyone in the audience um, in our communities a sense of frankly connecting with new stories uh, with a wider world. I think what you know what always excites me about being around Chris is you know his he's always revealing like well there's more to this than you can imagine or you you think it's three things and it's actually six or it's an abundance of things and that chance for public media to share stories and to share other stories and to have each person feel uh, how their story connects to those of others um, and to feel a sense of community uh, and interdependence uh, and a sense that there's always this opportunity to learn and grow both individually and to help your family uh, with what with the journey they're on. You know, for us, that means children's media, a lot of work where PBS is the largest producer of children's uh, programming uh, with all of it curriculum based, uh, trying to support the early development of children and getting them ready for their first formal schooling, but uh, kind of leveling the playing field and giving children of all backgrounds a sense of uh, opportunity and inclusion and sense of uh, being valued. I think that's the opportunity of public media is uh, really more so. And when you look at what's going on in commercial media, the opportunity to kind of level create a kind of common space for people to participate and to know one another and to know, and in a way uh, similar to the theme that Chris has struck to know one another differently and more richly and respectfully. That's certainly what we try to do for children. So I, ideally as public media continues to grow and evolve that presence in all communities, that work we're doing with all our communities within our communities to have people feel like this is a resource for them Somewhere here in this menu of stories, whether it's history, science, math, uh, there there are resources there for people to feel fully engaged with life, and uh, and it's and it's for everyone. And how do you do it in a sustainable way? I think of the thousands of organizations that we work with at Share Our Strength, and the challenge always when you're mission driven is, and you're not a com- necessarily a commercial enterprise in the traditional sense that we think of it, uh, the challenge is always to find a way to make that sustainable. It, seem, it feels like you've cracked the code. Well, it's a, uh, it's about a 50-year tradition, and uh, obviously the, the stations around the country that work in their communities were kind of always working on the recipe of what does it mean to be more valued, more effective. But uh, in the end, public media in this country is the has the largest base of voluntary contributed support of any cultural or uh, arts and education nonprofit broadly across this country because of presence and because hopefully of good work done in every community. The largest amount of our support is from our listeners and our viewers uh, and people in the community who realize that media is a resource that is a full community resource, at least public media is, and is um, a part of the recipe for healthy communities. I mean, much, I know you talk a lot about healthy communities and what we need to do to understand about access to, to, to food and food insecurity questions and uh, creating a means through which every child has the opportunity to have uh, healthy food in their lives. For us, uh, I think many uh, in communities across the country understand that uh, purpose-built, mission-driven media that is about healthy communities and informing and engaging communities is an essential part of strengthening community. And you've also kind of found a way to, um, I think of it as kind of punch above your weight in the sense that you're not only producing uh, for the the listeners in the WGBH area uh, here in Boston and New England, 
but uh, the content you're providing uh, and the way you're doing it has got to be influencing a lot of other public radio. Well, we're very fortunate to be here in the Boston area around these great universities, um, research um, uh, work uh, in the sciences, and frankly, the Boston community, a long tradition and history of innovation, also in the education space. So I think that's made it possible for WGBH to produce Nova, for us to produce American Experience, for us to do Frontline, to launch Julia Child back uh, many decades ago. Um, I... I think we're always thinking about what's next and we're, as Chris knows, we're really excited not only about broadcasting, but more so now with this digital uh, transformation that everyone's going through with their uh, tablets and more so with their, with their phones. It's an even more robust time for public media because you can get us everywhere. We can be wherever a community member is at a stage of their life, a, a point of, of need and engagement in their life, we can be on all those platforms. And I think that's actually going to make, uh, uh, make our content and the work we do that much more accessible and valuable. And it feels like the appetite in public media and in any media for the kind of stuff you do, Chris, broadly defined, the genre of food, it, it feels insatiable. <laughs> there, there's so many places to turn down. You, you describe some of the factors that have gone into that. Um, is, it, is it hard to keep up with? Well, if I just want to say something about public media, and John and I talk about this every year over a turkey sandwich, but um, I'm a huge supporter of public media, and, I, and I'm not a socialist. I'm a capitalist. But if you look at what's happening to media today, uh, newspapers are driven by clicks. Uh, everyone's being driven by focus groups. Everyone's being driven by audience. And if you drive, if you, if you manage your media business strictly to make a profit, you know, Julia Child would not have been on the Food Network. <laughs> it's just not going to happen or Mr. Rogers. I think the notion that the content is driving your mission is critical. And I think sometimes things that take time, Julia took time to sort of get popular. It takes time for people to warm up to something. And so when you start out with content and a mission, I think ultimately you can be more successful. And that's why public television is so great. But, but if, even if they did want me, I would never work on Food Never. I never want to be part of that. Not that they don't have great programming, they do. But the notion that you can change lives and, and reach out and connect with people over a medium that's not designed, first and foremost, to make a profit is essential. And I'm, I'm a, that's why I'm such a huge fan of public media, both radio and television, because it's there for a variety of reasons. And the first one isn't to make money. And, and that's, in the long run, Julie was a huge success. But she took time to build her audience. She, yeah. she never would have focus grouped well. And that's probably you know? not something people think about today. I mean, I'm so glad you've raised this because everybody just assumes she was always a success, right? It's interesting we talk about Julia because uh, with uh, the French chef, we were taking a real flyer on uh, on the opportunity to bring someone who was uh, – uh, a wonderful storyteller and character, but who loved cooking and had come off an experience where she wanted to uh, share more of what she'd experienced in Europe and kind of changed the way uh, people thought about the kitchen and about uh, and about cooking and kind of demystifying it. And she was a larger than life presence. So Russ Morash and others at WGBH uh, really launched the cooking genre of television with this remarkable woman from Cambridge, uh, Julia Child. And uh, what followed was a range, of, also often from GBH, uh, a, a set of new 
programs, the Victory Garden, where we also talked about bringing fresh produce into your table uh, with Marianne Morash. Um, but uh, then a long tradition of extraordinary uh, chefs uh, uh, that leads us all, all the way to Chris Kimball, but um, working with people like Ming Tsai, Lydia Bastianich, um, and Julia, you know, we're blessed. She stayed with it for uh, you know, 30 years or more. Uh, and she also had a very, very big heart about what she had built and what she'd created. So her later work included other chefs and travel, uh, cause she realized she was a trusted guide and she brought such, you know, care and joy and personality to it that I think it invited a whole new generation of really creative people into thinking what they could do as cooking was shared more broadly with the American people. Well, one thing about public television is you, they give you the time, right? It's not like if you don't have good ratings in the first two weeks, you're off. You can take years to build an audience and build what you want to do. And that was true of me. The first few years of the, the other show I did, America's Test Kitchen, you know, it took a few years to start building an audience. It always does. With that time, you establish an audience and you can establish your brand, establish your content. And I think that's essential in this world because this world is measured in hours, right? I mean, Instagram, Facebook, everything else is, is, is literally in hours. Public television is in decades. And that's really important to have a media that's totally devoted to the long-term uh, education. And, and education, I think, is a good word. Some people probably don't think so. But that's why I'm a huge fan. And I've always, you know, we have a public radio show and a public television show for that reason. One of the things, if I, I'm going to uh, say something about Chris that I think is emblematic of the best of what public media can do. And, and, it, and candidly, Billy, I think it's something that's more true today, perhaps, in how busy people's lives are and how perhaps overwhelmed they feel about the things they need to do when they're, you know, addressing their day with their, with their work, getting their kids to school, all the things that are coming at them, uh, almost overwhelmed. And, uh, there's a, when I met Chris and heard his concept and clearly what he, what he has done is distinctive, but I think what it shares, what we hear more and more when we talk to people with our, in our audience, we hear about authenticity. We hear about, uh, people who have a sincere interest in connecting on a subject and connecting with people. And I think in part what Chris is observing about that time that takes to find your audience and to really get to know your audience. I think Chris has a following and has built a loyal audience based on authenticity and he's thoughtful, he's engaged, he's humorous. But I also, I think that people understand they're getting uh, the real deal with Chris and why he's, doing the work he's doing. And I think that's true of our journalism. I think it's true of, of the storytelling in history and in science. You know, we're built for citizens, not consumers. We're built for a purpose. And we're lucky when people like Chris as you know, producers, hosts, authors uh, bring with them something they really care to do. And I think the audience really, for public media, really connects to that authenticity. Almost like anything else, right? Authenticity, if it's at the core of it, it's going to succeed over time. I'd love to hear each of uh, you talk about, as you were just uh, saying, John, uh, it's so overwhelming the time we live in, and particularly in terms of the information that comes at us or available. So if you're, if you're an individual just really trying to learn what is true and what is real, I feel like it's harder to do than ever in this world. But what are your strategies? And I want to hear you, Chris, as well, in terms of how do you keep up with this plethora of information. Well, one of the things um, at a very personal level, I would say is uh, first wrestling with taking care of my health. Um, 
and uh, knowing I was going to come sit down with you and Chris, I, I would say uh, I can't address the world and kind of figure out the rhythm and the manner in which I'm taking things in and making sense of them and prioritizing them if I haven't really wrestled with taking care of myself. And I'm a middle-aged person and I would say um, uh, I had heart surgery five years ago, uh, as Chris knows, and uh, really honestly felt that in both what I was – the way I was taking care of myself and the food I was eating and the patterns that I was in with what I was eating and how I was taking care of myself that way. Um, I was uh, uh, challenged to kind of rethink the way I was, uh, frankly, building a menu. And I realized that the patterns I'd gotten in, I was traveling a lot uh, and uh, eating a lot of uh, uh, – eating out a lot and uh, loving each meal individually. But I didn't think of the meals collectively across the day. Uh, so I made a different commitment to what breakfast meant. Um, I rushed through breakfast before and instead – you know, recognize how important it is, uh, and to be smart about, um, what I was eating in the, in the morning for breakfast to get a good start. The other thing, actually, uh, one of the challenges coming off surgery like that is you definitely deal with fatigue. And one of the other things in my reading that I was coming across is the kind of the, the, the bio cycle through the day that, you know, there, it, it helps to, if you're going to be smart to possibly snack through the day and to be, have some healthy snacks. So I also then added, uh, some nuts and other sustenance uh, around 1030 in the morning and around three in the afternoon. And that helped me uh, not develop these peak cravings that were creating often a reflex for me to go for something that was extra sugary or, um, or extra fat. But fundamentally what I had to do was flip the pyramid a bit. Um, I love my meat and protein, but uh, I came to love vegetables again. Uh, my grandmother had a vegetable garden in Vermont uh, that I would visit every summer. And I may be the only kid of my generation who actually loved asparagus. But I, I loved asparagus because it came fresh out of my grandmother's garden. And it's always been my favorite vegetable. And so I recognized that I had to rebalance and that there was a lot of and I think all the science tells us a lot of, of nutritional value and um, um, stamina that comes with really looking at what's going to be on your plate and uh, kind of have a wider uh, kind of a wider palate um, that includes it really kind of builds off of um, off of vegetables. And over the past five years, that's become the new normal for you. You've stuck with it. Yeah, yeah, it's um, you it's, look very healthy. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> yeah. I, I was able to lose weight, but also just feel. Um, just feel the energy and more resilience, um, because I was just more, just more deliberate and conscious about what the, the arc of, uh, my, uh, what my, what my diet was. And, uh, you know, and that notion of food is medicine was helpful because it meant that with each choice I was making, I was hopefully making a, a smart commitment to being healthier and in with sleep. Both those things, uh, the science of both those things have been, you know, I wish I, I wish I was more familiar with those challenges and what I could, uh, understand about them 30 years ago. Yeah. I'm reading Walker's, uh, book about, uh, why we sleep and the connection between sleep and health. Right. Who's, uh, the, who's the author? Uh, Walker, uh, I think Kevin Walker, Kevin Walker, yeah. okay. uh, New York times bestseller. Yeah. And of course, Ariana Huffington has also done yeah, a lot on this. You know, we had her on the podcast recently talking about sleep. I'm like 80 pages into this book and it is absolutely transforming the way I am. Wow. Gonna, I'm going to think about my priorities and patterns. Uh, 
And it makes me think about young kids and the pace that they're on when they're going to public school and 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 school and thinking about are they getting enough sleep? Because when you look at the connection, we're going to be doing a nova on the importance of sleep and the science of sleep that'll come out in the late winter, spring. And but it's really got me going on that sleep. And then following my heart surgery, I recognized I had to regroup. And to me, this this what I the notion that food is medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so being much more attentive to taking care of being healthy and being rested, I believe, honestly, Billy, maybe it's the most, you know, it's a very direct and personal answer to your question. I can't, I can navigate the day, navigate the week, my relationships with others and my relationship with all that news, if I'm well rested and healthy. And, uh, but if you get, if you're not, and you're stressed and you're not able to create a rhythm in your life and, and fortitude and resilience that, that press of life and the things coming at you can be overwhelming. Uh, I don't want this conversation to end. It's just been so fascinating, but we've got to probably bring it to a close. And I want to kind of, um, start to wrap up with uh, a little bit of discussion of, um, both, uh, food and, um, citizenship. And I'm thinking of something you wrote, Chris, in uh, Milk Street, you're such an elegant and intimate writer. And in the most recent one, uh, you say, uh, cooking is a universal language. Perhaps countries should be run by cooks rather than politicians, and we might all get along. Um, And then as you get into the article, you question whether cooking is, in fact, a universal language. But um, talk about that sentiment you've alluded to it a little bit earlier in the conversation, but um, and, and the notion that if, if if the world were run by cooks, we might be better off. Well, cooks are practical. Uh, they deal with the quote unquote facts on the ground, which means the ingredients at hand and the cooking methods. They are focused on cooking for other people. It's all it's communal, right? I mean, you don't really cook for yourself; you cook for other people. And it's also tied to history and tradition. You cook from a tradition. You, you, you may evolve over time. So all those things, tradition, history, a communal outlook, that is you're doing something with other people or for other people, and something that, that benefits the community, even if you're just talking about your household, those are things that seem lacking in our national discourse very often. Uh, and if you, took, if you thought about governing like cooking, and had those as your priorities, you know, maybe the food would be better, but certainly I think maybe the country would be better too. And where did you come out on cooking as a universal language? I couldn't quite tell from reading the piece because I thought you went back and forth a little bit and almost left it up to the reader to decide whether cooking is in fact a universal language. Well, it is. The, the approach is, I think my point was that when you see how people approach cooking in Japan, there's a physicality to how you move in the kitchen. In Vietnam, there's a Buddhist approach of the right way. Uh, and so people have very different approaches to what is cooking philosophically and physically in different kitchens. So it does vary a lot from place to place, but the underlying foundation of it is absolutely consistent because you're always trying to do the same thing. How you do it changes. Uh, and you need to understand the culture to understand how they do it. But a Japanese kitchen, an American kitchen are very different places, but with the same underlying goal. John, on, on, on the possibility that um, cooks won't get to run the world, um, 
I know you think a lot about citizenship and a big part of your mission at WGBH has been to promote and inculcate citizenship. Um, are there any uh, things you've got coming up that we should know about that help inform our thinking on how do we all play a role in creating good citizens? Well, the exciting thing for us is both we have uh, programs from American Experience or NOVA or Frontline um, that are topical, that will draw people in. Uh, the thing that I'm really excited about with public radio these days is that we've evolved uh, from those days in which we were really launching in the late 80s, that format. We've evolved uh, more, frankly, of a conversational style. Uh, here in Boston, we have a wonderful program, Boston Public Radio, three hours. And uh, it's an opportunity to have newsmakers, legislators, leaders, and community leaders and advocates in to talk about the issues of the day. And so for me, the citizenship question is about approaching participation in community with open ears. Um, and I hope that we're doing our part for, we're, we're asking a lot in the case of elected officials saying, no, 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 we want you, this is not about a soundbite. This is about coming and having a conversation with the people you represent and helping them understand why you're wrestling with some policymaking or a piece of legislation or looking at a problem that way. So that's a two-way commitment. One, we're saying to someone, come and join in a conversation from your position of knowledge and leadership. Help them understand, commit to not just declaring, but conferring in effect. Yeah. And we can do that in public radio. And then on the other side, hopefully, and I think this is going to be important because media – we, I think we've all watched this, atomizes people. You can choose a certain cable channel because you feel, you feel like you're in a community of people who share your views or you choose another cable network for the other reason. In our case, we want to be a big tent, but we ask when you come that you come ready to be in a conversation with the things you know, the things that you might still learn, come to know, and the chance to get to know others who you're hearing us uh, present to you. So to me, citizenship has a connection to conversation, community, and uh, an open mind and an open heart uh, because we're, we're only going to bind together and make some of the choices we have to make as a community, as a society, if we're doing it collectively. I was, a little bit of where Chris was going, I was connecting this to, we hear about all of the folks in Congress who now fly back. They've changed the congressional calendar, right? And everyone's flying back to their district on Thursdays and they say, well, you know, it's a, it's a different Congress because we're not staying in Washington and our families don't get to know each other and we're not spending time together. It's interesting. I'm thinking as I hear Chris talk about the kitchen and cooking, I think maybe what we should do on Thursday nights is just ask members of Congress to just be cooking together. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned that because one of the things we're talking about at Share Strength, this is actually an idea that my wife, Rosemary, first suggested is could we get, even if we just started on a small basis, three Republican members of Congress, three Democratic yeah. members of Congress to cook together and have uh, somebody, uh, you know, maybe a, a politically neutral chef if, or cook if there, if there is one, uh, to just bring them together that way. Because, you know, I, I worked in the Senate for 13 or 14 years and um, saw two things. The first senator I worked for was Gary Hart from Colorado. So this was back in the 1980s. And every day at five or six o'clock, he would uh, say to us, I'm going to go over to the floor of the cloakroom. If the Senate was still in session, you guys go home whatever time you go home. And he'd be over there and he'd be talking to other members. He had quite a few friends of the other party. Uh, the only other senator I worked for was Bob Carey from Nebraska, which was uh, about 10 years later. But it was the time in which 
C-SPAN had begun to televise the Senate. That's what happened in between, by coincidence, in between their two tenures. For Bob, uh, who was a very good senator and had some friends on the other side of the aisle, he would go into his office and leave the TV on, and he wouldn't go over to the floor, and he wouldn't hang out in the cloakroom, and you never really got to know the other senators the same way. So cooking, again, to the extent that it's a universal language, to the extent that it brings people together, we're actually thinking of ways to do that, that we've run into all kind of complicated Senate <laughs> ethics rules about uh. the value of the cooking lesson and whether we can do that. But I love the idea. And so we may come back to you to get some thinking on how to do well, that. Well, that could really be fun. It used to be they used to drink together. Exactly. Now, they were, they exactly. weren't eating. They were just <laughs> drinking. Come on. So we could, we could build a health component in this too. Yeah. We can actually be having them eating healthy food. With smoothies they're... instead of bourbon? <laughs> I don't think so. No. Well, I mean, I think what you were talking about, John, really is the whole ball game. This, I mean, we live in an era where, you know, most people's reflex is to declare, as you said, uh, what they feel about something and then defend it as opposed to, um, right, obviously, I mean, when we think about it, none of us can be right all the time, right? So there's got to be something to be learned from each other, but it's sure become a tough thing to do. Yeah, I, I, I more and more value people in my life, uh, well, and all the more in public life, who are great listeners and who I sense are always learning, that they feel like they're going to be better at what they've been asked to do because they're, they, have a, they have a wider aperture, they have a greater appreciation of the world, the part, the aspect of the world, of the way in which their constituents see the world that they might not know. It's, honestly, when Chris talks to me, it came to me about some aspects of launching Milk Street and where cooking was going, and but also how people understood understood cooking or understood good culture. And he was saying it so eloquently earlier, just how it was often so narrow or so prescribed. There was this incredible opportunity to understand and reveal new things. And that's, that's wonderment. That is a sense of uh, humility about here's what I don't know or here's how I could be better at addressing the world or being part of the world for the parts that I underappreciate. I thought Chris was very eloquent in talking about um, you know understanding these nations as we know them but to know them to have 30 cuisines, not a single cuisine. And, and I think that if we approached everything with that kind of humility and, and curiosity – I think we're going to find more commonality. Well, before we go, let's give our listeners a treat. Um, difficult question, maybe unfair for somebody in your industry, Chris, maybe uncomfortable, but a, um, it could be in Vermont, it could be in Massachusetts, it could be anywhere, some place where you like to eat that they may not know about, oh, some I, little I go-to. I knew this question was coming. So, oh, you're going to get me in trouble now. I know, I don't want to get you in trouble. And John, you've got a minute to think about it, and it's not as dangerous a question for you. But just maybe an unknown gem that we sh- we should have on our radar screens. Well, I'm going Saturday night to the Solo Restaurant in Vermont. It's it's uh, outside of Manchester. It's, I think it's in Londonderry. Uh, it's uh, a couple started a few years ago. It's, you know, locavores. They grow a lot of their own food. It's the old three o'clock in. I remember from the 1950s and 60s near Manchester, near Bromley and Stratton. Um, you know, it's just a lovely house and a lovely people and very good food. And, um, they create a real community of people there where I think they needed good food. Uh, so I love the community. I like the people and, um, uh, it's just a, a nice experience. You've got a go-to restaurant for us or a place that we should know about, John? Uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to do two quick ones. Uh, right up street from us in Brighton, Mass is a fun, funky place. Change the menu pretty regularly. And, uh, Wonderful mix of young people, older folks from the neighborhood, Brighton Bodega, 
which I just love and I love the vibe in there and the sense of um, constantly working on the menu. The other one though is uh, in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, a little place called Prairie Whale and it's pretty much unmarked. Okay. Uh, but what I love about it is – and we we are out there all through fall four seasons. So in addition to the Berkshires – High season in summer, you know, the other seasons are special because when you go, much in the spirit of what Chris was saying, the people that come in there, they're, they're young families, there are artists who come in, regular workaday people in professional lives, and this sense of all kind of loving this restaurant, but this sense, I love sitting in that dining room and just this feeling of kind of almost voyeuristically enjoying this community and watching this community come together and feel that in this restaurant, Prairie Whale, they've got a place that they share. Wow. Sounds great. Thank you both so much for being with us. Chris Kimball, you can be found almost anywhere, uh, Vermont, Boston, Tel Aviv, um, but Milk Street is the place to go. It's a great magazine and all of your other media platforms. Really excited about where this is headed. So thank you so much, Chris, for being with us. And John Abbott, WGBH, can be found anywhere through the internet now. Uh, certainly here in Boston, everybody knows it outside of Boston. You can go to just WGBH.org best place to find it. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Hope you've enjoyed this episode that you'll go to our website and find find others at addpassionandstir.com or on Apple Podcasts. You can rate us, rank us, uh, subscribe, and let your friends know about Add Passion and Stir. Thanks to Cybersound here on Newberry Street in Boston, to our producer, Paul Woodle, Woody, for producing this uh, podcast, as always, and our team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry Campaign, Debbie Shore and Kelly Griffin. I'm Billy Shore. Thanks for listening. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall. 